Professor Dorit Rubenstein Rice's undergraduate degree in law and political science is from the Faculty of Law in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where she served as editor-in-chief of the Law Review. Increasingly, her research and activities are focused on legal and policy issues related to vaccines. She writes about school mandates, policy responses to non-vaccinating, tort issues, and administrative issues related to vaccines. She is a member of the Vaccine Working Group on Ethics and Policy. We discuss a lot of the legal arguments made by the anti-vaccine community, like the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, why the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine doesn't actually apply, but why it should. She also teaches us about mandates, exemptions, and why the EUA status makes for dicey legal territory for a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine mandate. As someone who has been targeted and threatened by the anti-vaccine community, she also gives a lawyer's perspective on responding to those threats. Given that she got into vaccine because of her children, it was fitting that they made a brief appearance. Following graduation from law school, Professor Rice clerked for a year and a half in the Israeli Ministry of Justice's Department of Public Law, working on a variety of constitutional and administrative law issues. She received her Ph.D. from the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program in UC Berkeley, writing her dissertation on accountability in the liberalized telecommunications and electricity sectors in England, France, and Sweden. So we also discuss how we went from there to working with vaccines. Professor Rice's Initial research examined accountability of agencies at the state, national, and international level with agencies studied including the CPUC, the FAA, and other agencies in the United States and Europe. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from Medevolve, a company that empowers physician practices to work smarter with data-driven services. Are you tired of dealing with headaches like finding and retaining quality billing staff, high turnover, and limited resources? Many practices are opting to outsource all or part of their billing process to help relieve the burden on internal staff, free up resources, and reduce overhead costs. For those who wish to keep billing in-house, it's critical to have solutions that provide automation and give you the ability to monitor staff productivity and effectiveness, especially for remote employees. Metavolve can help you leverage data and AI solutions that bring answers to the forefront and take the guesswork out of revenue cycle management. Let them show you how. Have this great company help you work smarter, reduce your cost to collect, and get paid on time. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash medevolve. The link is also in the description of the show. Dr. Dorit Rice, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So your PhD thesis was on telecommunications in Western Europe. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking today about the legalities surrounding vaccines. How did you get from one to the other? I had a kid. And uh, being an academic and a geek, I started reading everything I could about children on and offline. Books, blogs. I signed up to a number of science blogs and read everything they wrote about child rearing. And then one of my favorite science blogs wrote a post about MMR vaccine. And someone posted an anti-vaccine comment. And it had never occurred to me that there could be people who are anti-vaccine. I said, what? 
Uh, and the blog, uh, the, the owner of the blog answered her. She was a scientist, a PhD and a mom, and she answered her uh, in detail. And I started reading about this because it looked interesting and weird. And then one of my ex-students said, have you read The Panic Virus by Seth Nukin? And I said, no. So I read it. And my takeaway was that uh, pro-vaccine parents should speak up online. And I went online as a mom, looked up, went on Facebook, looked up vaccines and started commenting and got more involved than I thought. Then I met one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Rob Schwartz, who teaches uh, health law. And he also teaches tort and he helped me set up my tort class when I was a very young professor. Uh, and uh, I told him, I'm doing this online thing with vaccines. And he said, you know, I teach about vaccines in health law. Maybe we should do a panel. And that was the first move into professional writing about this. Um, and Wait, wait, wait. So you turned an internet rabbit hole into a career. Like the rest of us, yeah. we get sucked into the comments section and it yeah. ultimately ends up just being a waste of time a lot of the time. Although to your point, like we really should be commenting because not, and we, we've said this in the podcast before, not really for the person that you're arguing with, but more for the lurkers, right? Exactly like you're never right. going to, convince someone, but if someone reads your argument and they internalize it, they're more likely to exactly in one direction. I mean, I usually think about it. There are three audiences you're writing for, and none of them is the person you're interacting with. I have met anti-vaccine people who came back, but it has to come from them. Something in their life usually happens. But the three other audiences, first, there are lurkers who are fence-seaters, and they need uh, answers to concerns and questions. Second, they're the people who are already pro-vaccine and they need affirmation that they're not being misled the way this person is trying to convince them they are. And third, there are the other advocates who might need arguments. You, as you said, not everybody will know the legal aspects of vaccines. So by setting out our answers, etc., you're also helping other advocates take them on. Which is why you're here today. Yes. So on your journey into down the vaccine rabbit hole, you observed a grand rounds by Dr. Paul Offit. Yes. And afterwards, you pulled him aside and no, corrected him. I, I emailed. I emailed. Okay, emailed, emailed him. Okay. <laughs> Trying to make it sound a little more dramatic. Okay. Yes. You, but nonetheless, you emailed him about some of the legal issues that he had mentioned that you thought he had misunderstood. So assuming that the listeners don't know as much about vaccines as the creator of the rotavirus vaccine and someone who's been a, a lifelong advocate of it. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us, if you recall, what were those things that you had mentioned to him? Yes. Yeah, so first I want to say that I've learned a lot from the Grand Rounds and Dr. Offit is someone I admire. I always learn from him and I learned from him about the law in that uh, Grand Rounds as well. There were three things I thought he could um, have uh, pushed on. Uh, and only one of them, I think, was uh, crucial. Um, one of them, I, the most important one, and, and I can pull up that email, but I'm not going to. The most important one was that he said, as an argument why religions don't oppose vaccines, that at the time Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity started, there were no vaccines. That's a problematic argument, and anyone who does religious law will point that out, because religions say a lot about things that didn't exist when the religion started. Religious law develops, 
And uh, the Bible didn't say anything about the internet either, but there are religious rules pretty much for every religion on some aspects of it. Uh, so that was not the best way to approach the question of whether or not the religions had something to say. A better argument was the fact that most modern religions support vaccine or at least don't oppose them. Even Christian science doesn't oppose them. Uh, so my suggestion was your argument isn't the best argument for addressing religious law, maybe you should address this instead. Uh, the other two issues were minor. One of them was the use of Brown versus uh, Stone, a Mississippi court that said that a religious exemption is unconstitutional because it violates equal protection. And my point there was, it's true that the case said that, but it's a one state court that a uh, case that's not very well reasoned and didn't have any follow-up. So be careful assuming that uh, it can go that's more of a legal that's a legal argument like and exactly. how how cases you know hopefully none of our physicians unless you also happen to have a jd are, are getting down exactly that and and the third argument is even more legalistic okay sure. okay so the, the the main issue was how to adjust religious uh, law and and just a caution don't assume that the fact that religion started before vaccines is determinative here yeah so Currently, there are two vaccines available for, for those who want them. But at some point, and currently the, the demand is really outpacing the supply. But at some point, supply is going to outpace demand and, and the virus is going to still be out there. So some of the vaccine-hesitant patients are going to hear about vaccine injuries and are going to use that as an argument. Well, you know, the, the pharmaceutical yeah. companies are protected, and so this really proves that there's something more nefarious going on. What are they hiding? So yeah. I think it's important that the physicians understand the vaccine injury compensation program, really the origins of it, how it works, so that if someone does come in and that's one of their trepidations, we're able to address that. So please tell us what that program is all about. I will. And I'm going to actually start with a different program because the COVID-19 vaccines are not currently covered under VICP for reasons that I'll mention in a moment. I also want to start by recommending to advocates that when you start this discussion, it might be a good idea before you delve into the program to start with the idea that liability protections are going to be a reason for companies to not worry about vaccines that are so high profile being unsafe and backfiring on them when, again, there's so much attention to this, the vaccines be, turning out to be unsafe can really hurt the reputation, is unrealistic. But the, the liability protections are very real. And the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program is actually the more generous and better program of the two programs that we have. So right now, COVID-19 vaccines are fall under the uh, PrEP Act. Uh, there's a PrEP declaration by the, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. That's, yes, the Public, Public Readiness and Emergency yes. Preparedness. See, I, I just blanked on it for a moment. So under the PrEP Act, uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services has the authority to limit liability for a product during an emergency. In February 2020, the Secretary issued a, a PrEP declaration for any COVID-related vaccines or treatments. So it's not just vaccines. It covered remdesivir and anything else that's approved to treat COVID-19. And it protects them from liability until 2024, unless something happened in between. Uh, the rationale for that is, in an emergency, we want products out fast. That means they won't be as, uh, won't necessarily be. Surprisingly, our vaccines were 
as well tested as they uh, would be. Uh, they won't normally be as well tested as other vaccines, and companies may not do that if they're worried about liability. We want this product facts because the risk-benefit analysis in an emergency uh, is skewed towards the harm of what's causing the emergency. In this case, thousands of people are dying every day from COVID-19. We won't have, even in the worst-case scenario, we won't have that level of harm from the vaccines. So we want them out fast. Liability protection are there to encourage a quick production. The liability protection here are connected to Countermeasure Injury Compensation Program, CICP, which is a program created in uh, the early 2000s and operational since 2005. Here's why I think we should move the vaccines to VICP, because CICP is a really hard program. First, uh, you have to show that the vaccine caused your harm or the, the other measure caused your harm with clear, compelling medical and scientific evidence. That won't be available at first for the vaccines, even if there are things that the vaccines cause. It's just a very high bar. Uh, second, you can, it's a program of last resource, which means if you have health insurance, you don't get money from the program, even if you qualify under it. Um, that's not great. And uh, third, uh, the, stat the statute of limitation is really short for it. It's only one year from you when you got the vaccine. So if you noticed your first symptoms uh, three, two years or three years down the line, you have a problem. Now, I will say that our history of these vaccines is that there has never been a vaccine where the issues only emerged two or three years down the line. Vaccine reactions are usually within at most weeks. But there is a theoretical possibility that this will be different and the program won't cover that. Uh, so that's the problem with this program. But right now there's no need to do that because you're, again, the supply, the, the demand outstrips the supply. Once we hit that inflection point and if some people are dragging their feet because the compensation program is under the wrong, right? Uh, not the wrong, but, but you know, it's under, it's not under VICP then maybe there'd be a reason to do it. But now, right now, it doesn't seem there's incentive enough to, to change it. I think you're right. And there's also kind of a custom. We've done that before. So um, as you're correctly saying, we don't really need that level of protection right now, but it's in place. And the only way to change it right now would be, well, the secretary could change, could remove the prep declaration. The secretary is not very likely to do that. No. Because, uh, We're for still an emergency, yes. It's still an emergency. There are other products, and we still want the vaccines to come out fast. Yeah. The other way to do it is congressional statute that uh, puts the vaccine under the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And I think that's a better approach. So let's talk about that one. Okay. And, until the 1980s, vaccines were treated like every other product. That means that if you're claiming a vaccine injury, you'd usually go to state court. And the most usual claim would be a design defect. You would say the design of the vaccine is too dangerous to be allowed forward. There are other claims you could make, such as negligence or a manufacturing defect. The vaccine was manufactured negligently or improperly. Um, but design defect would be the most common because most of the time vaccines were manufactured okay. And most of the time, you couldn't show negligence. In the 1980s, uh, 
two things that led to increased lawsuits converged. One was a movie called Vaccine Roulette, uh, which made people think that the pertussis vaccine had risks that turned out it didn't have. But at the time, many reasonable people thought it did, that the pertussis vaccine caused brain damage, seizure disorder, and seeds. Um, that led to an increase in lawsuits against pertussis manufacturers, and they started leaving the, ma the market because it just wasn't worth it. The liability costs were not worth the relatively low profit from vaccines. The other thing that, and that was a long-standing thing, was continuing lawsuits about uh, oral polio vaccines, which occasionally can cause paralysis. Those were uh, more grounded in science, but legally they were tricky because the main claim there was lack of warning. Uh, the design defect claim tended to be rejected because the risks of the vaccine were much smaller than its benefits. And the warning claims were something the manufacturers could manipulate. They could put out more warnings and uh, avoid liability for that. The increase in lawsuit led manufacturers to relieve the market. Congress, concerned about lack of vaccine supply, was finally starting to act, was finally ready to act to allow, to protect manufacturers from liability to some degree. Plaintiffs, people who were bringing the lawsuits, were not happy because they lost most of them, because it's really hard to win those cases. You have to show that the design is more risky than its benefit, and most vaccines just don't fit. That wouldn't be on the market. They wouldn't exactly. Be, they wouldn't stay. Yeah. Exactly. Or at the least, you'd have to show there's an alternative, safer design with the same benefits. Yeah. So these were really hard claims to win, and uh, plaintiffs also wanted a better case. So even uh, vaccine injury lawyers and the emerging anti-vaccine organization, which later became the National Vaccine Information Center, supported it. So everyone supported this. Uh, Congress acted, and the result was a compromise that nobody was happy with, but <laughs> we could live with. Yeah. And that's the current National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. It's better than the countermeasure injury compensation program in several ways. First, it's, it is relatively generous. All you have to show is uh, damages and uh, causation and damages. And the causation standard is not only easier than the countermeasures program I described, but easier than the regular courts. You have two options. One is to show that your injury is one on a table, administrative table of injuries within the time after the vaccine, in which case, causation is presumed, and the government, if it wants to, has to disprove causation. So those cases are usually an open and shut. So there's a list. There's a predetermined yes. list. These are things that we think the vaccines may cause. Yes. If your injury matches this list in a predetermined period of time, then you get your compensation. So it's it's there's no almost like there's no case. Yeah, that's it's like one you check time. a bunch yes. of boxes. That's yes, that's one line, okay. and the list is intentionally generous. For example, for GBS, uh, Guillain-Barré syndrome, there's no good evidence connecting annual influenza vaccine to it, but it's on the list because, for policy reason, it's going to be really hard to do those studies, even if there's a link. Link, and the program is geared to be generous. Yes, because we don't we want more people vaccinated. the The cost exactly. of the program is low relative to the savings in public health good by continued va vaccination. Exactly. I also think there's a second argument for this, which is an ethical argument. Vaccines do two things, as you know, protect you and protect the public through herd immunity. If it's part of a public good, it's unfair that the few people that are harmed 
bear the costs by themselves. Because they're participating in a public good, society owes them. And that was the reason, for example, Germany went to no fault and, and other countries went to no fault. We're more, a little more uh, materialistic, maybe. Uh, that maybe. wasn't the argument <laughs> at the time. But, uh, but we're still there. And I think it's still an ethical argument for the program. Compensate people generously and fast, even if there is a doubt. So you can fall under the table. If you're not on the table, you still... You have to show causation at the same level of the court, 50% plus. But in court, you would have to bring scientific evidence to make your claim. In NVICP, it's enough to bring a plausible expert, uh, sorry, a credible expert that brings a plausible theory. So it's enough to bring someone who has credentials in the area and raises a plausible theory even without scientific evidence behind it. Now, just to be clear, if the scientific evidence against the theory that's going to be an issue. That's why seeds claim are routinely rejected by the program because the science shows vaccines don't cause seeds. But if there's no data on this, either way, a theory is all you need. It's Who a, sits on this jury? Because when we're tried, right, for malpractice, yes. the jury is you know, just regular citizens, not experts. So <laughs> who sits on this jury? So this is an administrative program. It does not have a jury, but the people sitting on it, the special masters are isolated from political pressure, for example, in, in a, by, by two layers of protection. They're appointed by the ju justices, judges of the courts of federal claim. The, the courts of federal claim judges are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate in the same way that article three federal judges are appointed, but they don't have life tenure. They have 14 years of tenure, uh, non-renewable, if I remember correctly, and um, uh, but not life. So, so these, these are lawyers, these are scientists, these are physicians who... Yes, who they're by large lawyers that are appointed to be administrative law judges, special masters okay. is the term, and, and they're appointed by people who are isolated from uh, politics. So... While they're state officials, there's, there are two layers of isolation from the state, and they're not connected to the parts of HHS that actually regulate vaccines, not in any direct way. Okay. So they're administrative law judges. They're pretty independent. The format of the program is uh, very much like a trial. In some ways, it's, it's very different from a civil trial. For example, there's no discovery. Uh, the rules of evidence are relaxed. You can bring in experts that you couldn't bring in regular courts, including experts that would not pass Dobert, and you can bring in evidence that you couldn't in regular court. But it's still a very evidence-based procedure. Uh, the special master collects the evidence, does oral hearings, uh, gives the party a lot of time usually to bring in evidence, uh, and then makes a reasoned decision if the parties don't settle. About 70 or 80% of the cases end in a settlement. That's true of civil courts as well. But for those that don't, the special masters write very reasoned, very detailed decisions. They actually do a decent job most of the time in going through the evidence. And, and they get the advantage of expertise because they do the same kind of case again and again. Uh, the other advantages of the program are that it um, covers your lawyer fees and your costs as long as they're reasonable. So uh, there's no contingency fee. The lawyer, you get, if you're a Petitioner, you get all of the 
uh, price money and your experts are uh, costs are covered. Um, unreasonable. So for example, the court stopped compensating cases that are claiming autism based on this, the same claims that have been rejected again and again. So unreasonable usually means you're bringing a case that's been rejected again and again and again because there's no evidence for it. Uh, there's um, the, the lack of the rules of evidence means that, for example, the, if the parent has a, a personal log where they made notes about what happened, that can be evidence. So it's pretty broad. There are some disadvantages for plaintiffs. So the statute of limitation is three years, which is normal even in a court, regular court. But in regular court, if your plaintiff is a child, the statute of limitation stops until they're 18. Not in this court. In this court, it's for children as well. Uh, the caps, there are caps on death damages and pain and suffering. Uh, and they've been set in the 80s and have not been increased. So they're out of date. That's also true, for example, in California for the caps for medical malpractice. Uh, but, but they should be updated. I'm not trying to excuse that. And the Why don't they write that in the law to begin with? That like it's a I mean, continuous process yeah. that you calculate it based on today's dollar, you based it on the current value, not today's value. I agree. I mean, there's no reason not to index caps. Yeah. They just didn't. Uh, it's not perfect. Yeah. And and um, uh, the program is more adversarial than it probably should be. The state sometimes fi fights, for example, on levels of compensation when it doesn't make sense. I've heard a rumor that in one case they argued about what type of diapers would be allowed for the person in question. It's not perfect. Yeah. But it's a relatively generous, generous program. Uh, and... So you're more likely to win. The, so, the, I mean, the short story is the the pharmaceutical companies didn't pull out out of fear. They didn't say, we need this compensation program to protect yes. us, which is what the argument is. They said, the economics of this doesn't make sense if we're going to keep getting sued. So we're out. We're leaving. Yes. And yes. so Congress said, you know what? Having Protecting you so that you don't want to leave is in the greater public good. So we're going to create a program that not only protects you, but is more likely to, to be compensate in favor of the plaintiff. Yes, so, and I want to remind people, everybody talks about liability protection. If you have an inherent side effect of a pro, a, another product, if you have an allergic reaction to an antibiotic that's written as, as, as an inherent risk of that, you probably have no case. Yeah. Uh, it's an inherent risk of the product. In vaccine court, if you had an allergic reaction to a vaccine, even though it's an inherent risk, you do have a case because the program because of the greater good, because well. of the greater yeah. good that you were talking yes. about. Yes, I mean, wow. So that that's really enlightening, and I think makes it it's going to make it easier for us to to allay those fears of uh, if that's the hesitancy. But that's not going to be the only issue that they encounter online, right? When they're scrolling mm -hmm. through. And they're in their town's Facebook group and people are, or whatever. So are there any other legal issues that the anti-vaxxers use in their arguments that my patients might be exposed to that I'm going to need to counsel them about? What, what do I need to be prepared for? So the, the uh, you're going to hear arguments of lack of informed consent. What do anti-vaccine people mean when they say lack of informed consent? It usually means one of two things. One, you didn't give the patient the product insert rather than the vaccine information statement. The, not, the, the best answer to that is the product insert is not a good informed consent document. 
A, it doesn't involve, include everything that, that is required to have meaningful informed consent. For example, it usually doesn't have the benefits of the vaccine. B, it doesn't reflect later data that isn't the clinical trials. So it's not a good reflection even of the vaccine's risk and benefit. And C, it's not written in an accessible way. For example, it lists everything reported in the trial, even if the vaccine didn't cause it. So it's not a very good informed consent document. Um, if someone wants to look at it online, they can and ask you questions, but your better informed consent con document is a vaccine information statement, which is relatively short, accessible, includes everything you need for informed consent. And uh, it even includes, by the way, information about VICP, uh, if someone wants it. Um, so one of the arguments you'll hear is lack of informed consent, and that's the answer to the, uh, and it'll be sometimes based on not giving the insert. Sometimes you'll hear it based on not telling uh, people about the risk of autism for vaccine. And that's even easier because uh, telling people vaccines have risks that they don't have is not informed consent. It's misinforming them. In fact, it undermines informed consent. Yeah. But you will hear that. Argument. Misinformed consent. Exactly. Yeah. Don't misinform patients. Another legal argument, and these are smaller issues that I'm going to Another legal argument you may come across is the argument that vaccines are less well-tested by the FDA than other products, which I hope you, you know is not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, the FDA regulates vaccines under the uh, Public Health Service Act as biologics. That means they need to uh, meet the standards of the act, but the FDA has always also applied to them the standards under the Food and Drugs Act. So in essence, vaccines have to meet two regulatory framework where other products have to only meet one. They're more regulated. Uh, the uh, biologics uh, license application includes uh, not just licensing the product, but licensing the facilities. Uh, the act includes batch testing that uh, other drugs aren't always subject to. So there's more regulation of vaccine and more testing than other products. But you physicians are probably going to hear the opposite. Um, and also, the, the I think the benefits need to far outweigh the risks with regards to vaccines, in in a way that other things don't have to pass such muster, right? Like like a chemotherapy drug, right? You're willing to take certain side effects and certain risks because if you didn't, then this thing would likely take your life. Whereas in the vaccine, you're taking someone who is otherwise healthy and administering the vaccine. So if there are significant risks in them, then they're going to get pulled from market pretty quickly. That's completely We're just right. Not it's willing not, to tolerate it. Yeah, that's not written into the law, but it's exactly how it's applied. Because, uh, for the exact reason you said, I don't have anything to add. Um, another. To be fair, I probably heard you say it. <laughs> not me. You may have had Doctor Rocket. He says that, uh, and he's and it's right. It's just the fact. We're not yeah. willing to accept the risks when we give something to healthy people that we are when we use something in uh, sickness. Yeah. Um, the other issue you're going to hear about is the question of vaccines being forced. Uh, and let me start by saying, we, except for the fact that parents decide to give vaccines to their children and that no reasonable child under the age of five welcomes a needle, <laughs> uh, we don't generally force vaccine. I've helped my children when, I, when they were given vaccine, but that's not what anti-vaccine people mean when they talk about force. Anti-vaccine people say that vaccines in the United States are forced, they're not. Um, 
there's several ways that you can uh, impose consequences for vaccine refusal. And right now, at least, none of them involve holding anyone down and vaccinating them by force. But let's talk about mandates, because that's the other area where there's a lot of contention and you may hear things. And practically speaking, there's three kinds of mandates that you may need to worry about or, or may need to address. One are school mandates. The other are uh, mandates in which the state attaches a fine uh, to a vaccine. And the third are workplace mandates, and they each have their own issues. Non-related to COVID, the most common way we uh, reach high levels of childhood vaccine rates is through school immunization mandates. Every state has them since the 1970s. Uh, they have different kinds of exemptions, uh, and they vary in which vaccines they mandate, but all states have school immunization mandates. Uh, all of them have a medical exemption. Most states have a religious exemption or a personal belief exemption or both, but not all. That's the general framework. They're not about COVID, so I don't know if you need... If you want to go deeper or how much deeper, so I'll let you leave. Well, let's let's start out where we are with COVID because right now it's not even, it hasn't even been tested in children. Right now exactly. where we are, it's being tested in kids over 12, uh, but it's it's still, yes. you know, we're, we're a ways away. So yes. but let's talk about how mandates could work themselves out for adults, potentially. Yes. So right now in my hospital, Right, I'm at NYU Long Island, where mm -hmm. it used to be called by a different name until NYU took over, and then, and they uh -huh. they mandate the flu vaccine. So yeah. it started out as you need if you don't get the flu vaccine, you have to wear a mask, and then ultimately it ended with, no, you just have to get if you want to work here, you have to get the flu vaccine. Yes. So, um, what do you see happening, or what do you foresee happening with regards to COVID? Do you think that would end up going in the same direction where you? And what are the grounds and legal ramifications um, for for institutions that plan to do that? So you're already setting out the two parts of this uh, picture. When it comes to employer mandates, there really are two parts. Can they and should they? I'm going to start with the can. Should is getting gets a lot more complicated. But let's talk about can your employer mandate vaccine. And as you point out from your experience with your employer, the, answer, the short answer is yes, but... So generally speaking, employment in the United States is at will. Uh, your employer can uh, impose workplace conditions, and especially, I'm controversial, are workplace conditions that are, are there to increase health and safety. A COVID-19 vaccine mandate is there to increase health and safety, and it's usually permissible. Here are the four buts. But number one, these vaccines are currently authorized under an emergency use authorization. And the short version of a complicated story is that there's legal uncertainty on whether you can mandate a vaccine under the EUA. The statutory language is unclear. The FDA and the CDC have been saying you can't, but there's nothing in the EUA that says that expressly for the workplace. The statute does not speak to employers. It speaks to recipients of the vaccines as providers. And the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission which is the federal agency that monitors workplace discrimination law, issued the guidance about COVID-19 vaccines that suggested that it's okay to mandate them with an EUA. So I would say there's really legal uncertainty here. If it went to court, and it likely will, there's a 50-50 chance that the court will uphold a workplace EUA mandate. So okay. That's a short okay. 
So that's okay. one. One is EUA. The second uh, limit on workplace mandates is that if you have a unionized workforce, the collective bargaining agreement may require you to negotiate in, with the union before you can mandate the vaccine. That's going to be very specific to the case. It depends on what your collective bargaining agreement says. It depends on where your union are. Your union may be very pro-vaccine man mandate or very much against them. It's going to vary. So um, you need to consider collective bargaining if you have a unionized workforce. But I can't say more than that because it's really very specific to your workplace. The third part is the American with Disabilities Act says that if an employer has, if an employee has a qualifying disability and some vaccine contraindications are going to be qualifying disabilities, then you need to accommodate them unless it's an undue burden. What's an accommodation here? It doesn't mean you treat the uh, exempt employee the same as everybody else necessarily. You can take steps to reduce the risk. For example, if uh, there is available extra PPE, maybe the unvaccinated employees have to wear that PPE. If there's a way to work from home, maybe the unvaccinated employees have to work from home or work isolated. But you have to do something to allow the employee with a disability to work. And your burden here is a pretty high bar. It means really significant cost to you. So for us, that might be someone who works, for my practice, this might be someone who works as a medical assistant and yes. you end up taking them out of their patient-facing position and putting them in a place where they do something like prior authorizations. So yes. they spend all day in the on the phone. It's not as an enjoyable experience yes. for them. So would that be a problem? You know, that that they actually don't want to do the work that you're providing for them. Or you're uh, making the reasonable accommodations, so therefore you're protected. Good. You're protected in terms of reasonable accommodation. They might choose to resign. Okay. Their and they don't have a legal remedy against you if the accommodation is reasonable. Now, remember that when it comes to this kind of contraindication, there's probably more of the justification than the religious exemption I'm about to talk about, because in a sense, the person here is in a bind. If they have, for example, a, a previous allergic reaction to a vaccine, which ACIP recommended as a, at least a caution, maybe they want to get vaccinated, but it's really dangerous for them. In a sense, the people with real disabilities are the victim here yeah. uh, because they can't get protected. And in a sense, the mandate is there to protect them as well. One goal of the mandate is to reach levels of herd immunity that will protect the few people that have a real disability. So um, workplace, I hope workplace don't approach it as these are, these are shirkers because a lot of the time, these are people who are in a really tough place. Uh, the other type of exemption is a religious exemption. Now, under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, an employer is not allowed to discriminate on a number of grounds, including religious grounds. And that's the only one that's relevant here. What that means here is that if your employee has a sincere religious objection to the vaccine, um, then you have to give a reasonable accommodation unless it's an undue burden. Even though the language is the same, undue burden here is a much lower bar. It means no more than minimal cost. Law is confusing that way. It sometimes uses the same term to mean something different. So if it's more than minimal cost, you don't have to accommodate them. If it's minimal cost, you have to accommodate them in the same way we just talked about. You have to, for example, as you said, move the assistant to where they won't be a patient facing. Do they have to? prove that it's against their like do they have to cite scripture or something like that 
So you can ask them to demonstrate that their belief is sincere. But this is an area where employers tend to run into trouble. Yeah. Because here are things you can't do. You can't tell them, bring me a letter from your clergy. You can't tell them you have to show me a specific verse because maybe there's more than a specific verse. Maybe it's an interpretation of a whole body of literature. Um, You can't ask them to show that their belief is rational. If they sincerely believe in the invisible pink unicorn and they sincerely believe that they can only be poked by the horn of the invisible pink unicorn, (laughs) that's a religious belief for this purpose. I'm choosing an extreme example. But the idea is you can't judge if their belief makes sense or not. So it's a it's a landmine area. Yeah, there's no piety test. Yes, exactly. But you can, for example, ask them, write out what your objections are. And you'll be surprised how often the people who write the objections are saying, I'm really scared that this vaccine is unsafe. And also there's this one verse that says that my body is my temple. That's not a religious exemption. Okay. Uh, If your concern is mostly safety and then you latch up to one verse to support it, that's not religious opposition. That's You have safety concerns. That doesn't qualify. So you can ask people to write an an explanation, but... um, uh, you need to be careful with it because it's very easy to make mistakes such as discriminating towards organized religion or actually judging the rationality. Employers fall into that all the time. Now, you mentioned before some, an, um, an employee having a severe reaction. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, an employer does mandate the vaccine, right? And the, the employee has a severe reaction. Is mm-hmm. the employer at legal risk this will if there's a workplace mandate this will almost certainly be covered by workers compensation because it's a work-related requirement so yes and no the employer would usually not be able to be taken to court because workers compensation is a substitute but workers compensation will have to cover it so the employer will be on the hook for workers compensation um and it's actually an advantage because, as we said, right now the vaccines are covered by the counter-injury compensation program. If it's a workplace requirement, you have another source of coverage beside this very hard-to-use program, and that's workers' comp. Um, but yeah. Now, here's another question. If you don't mandate the vaccine and one of your employees gives it to someone else, can you be sued for not mandating? And the answer is maybe. <laughs> Wait a second. So, so there's maybe to if we can even mandate it, we could be sued for mandating it, and then we could also be sued for not yes. mandating it. Mandating it, man. Yes. Wow. People. You lawyers you are something else. Sorry, uh, but so anyone can sue for anything. If yes. you look up, it's America. A just sued for his uh, for the for his cleaners for fifty four million dollars for not returning his pants. A suit like that would have to show that it was unreasonable not to mandate, and that's a pretty hard, hard thing to show. So you may be sued, but it's not a very strong suit. Okay, okay. So, Congress so, and the states are working on liability protections, which may or may not pass. Okay. What about, what about if, if our staff is vaccinated, but the recommendation is still to continue wearing PPE, and mm-hmm. they start getting lacks with the PPE. How do we discourage that type of risky behavior without being, I don't know, crossing a line? I mean, how would you, how how do you encourage them to wear PPE for things that don't have vaccines? I mean, we just 
we we haven't encountered at least I haven't encountered a situation where it was it was an issue and it, and it would seem to me like you would cover you'd be covered the same way we go about you know firing people you create exactly. a paper trail you encourage it over and over they refuse yeah. to you document it and ultimately you let them go yes this is the same kind of problem that you have with enforcing for example hand washing requirements yeah uh, you have tools to to discipline employers that don't cooperate but it's really hard to enforce. First of all, everybody's going to probably make a mistake at some point. And second, uh, you have to continuously monitor and use those tools and you have to balance losing a valued employee with enforcing the act. It's not different, I think, for this context than for the other context where you're trying to enforce. What's the advantage of a vaccine mandate? We distinguish between continuous requirements and discrete requirements. Discrete, discrete requirements is you have to do it once and you're done. You have to put in place, uh, I don't know enough about hospitals to surrogate, something that cleans, a cleaning machine, and you're done. You get a vaccine, and you're done for the year. Uh, those are easier to monitor than a continuous requirements such as hand washing and masks. Yeah. That's just the nature of the enforcement. Okay, okay. What type of records do we need to keep about vaccination, vaccinations for ourselves and our staff? I don't think I can answer that. Uh, that's a, going to be a, a very state-specific medical records question that's a little bit beyond my expectation. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and here's a very niche, niche question that... Please. So let's say we have our, we're administering the vaccine to our staff. We give them the first dose, and then they leave, right? They quit, they move yeah. on to greener pastures. Um, yeah. Are we still obligated? What's the obligation for record keeping and um, supplying that second dose, making sure they actually come back for it, you know, dogging them? Do we have to treat them like a patient where we have to? Are you their provider otherwise? Um, that's a good question. Are we the employer or the provider? I think in that situation, we're acting as provider. I suspect there are answers to that. I'm sure because you have been given, for example, influenza vaccine, which are not two dose, but are annual. Yeah. Not two dose for adults usually, but are annual. Um, but I, I'm not sure what those answers will be in this case. I think it's going to be a very specific, case-specific, case-by-case uh, question. But I think you're, you're, you answered the question with a question, is that are you, are you an employer or a provider? And I, I think yeah. in that situation, because we're physicians, we're acting as provider for the employees. Here's why I'm hesitant, because other kind of businesses do have vaccination clinic on site. Yeah. And they're not providers in normal times. So are you in that situation, the position of someone who's supplying a vaccination clinic or are you in, uh, or have you actually become a provider? I think that, uh, that's going to really depend on how you do it. And it's going to be very fact specific to that specific case. You may be on the hook, but it's really going to depend on the uh, specific of how it's done. I would assume that just given the nature of our profession, we're going to be held to a higher bar, just the history. Very possible, but I wouldn't assume until you talk to your own institution lawyers and see what's in your institution's files. I yeah. mean, this is really going to be a case where you want to look at the data. Don't assume they're off the hook. So you had mentioned exemptions, religious and uh, health exemptions. Um, are there any other exemptions out there or those are the two? 
those are the current two. Now, some states are looking at legislation which may not go anywhere that would prohibit mandates or require giving a personal belief exemption to anyone. And so if states pass legislation, the state legislation governs. For example, Oregon has a law against employers' mandates. So you do want to also look at your state's legislation. Also, you, you already raised this, but I want to reemphasize this. Remember that we use the term mandates, but a mandate can be if you don't get the vaccine, you need to wear PPE uh, for everybody. You can have that regardless of whether there's an exemption or not. Or if you don't get the vaccine, you're fired. And they're going to work differently uh, in practice. Okay. Yeah. The other thing we haven't talked about are state and federal mandates. I'm not sure if uh, that's of interest to your uh, group. Well, do you think that's going to, because I think a lot of our listeners that are going to be private practices, yes. right? Where they, they run their practice. And so they're going to be in a position to make, to make these decisions as yes. opposed to someone who's listening, who is, you know, an employee of a hospital or a large multi-specialty practice where they may not be in that position as the, as the decision maker. So, you know, as the decision maker is the one who's running the business, what do we need to be aware of? First of all, if your state passes along this, either way, you need to know what the state said. Okay. Uh, because that's going to limit your option. Everything I said now, and the state law can be in the uh, area of licensing or in the area of direct mandating. You, you may end up with either one of those. Uh, or, or direct prohibition on a mandate. You need to know your state's legislation on this. States are discussing this. I don't know where they'll end up. And um, I don't know if we'll see a lot of mandates. I mean, for, to give one example, uh, one of the priority groups for uh, in the next stages of the vaccines are going to be correction officers. If correction officers don't want the, the vaccine, Maybe it makes sense for the state to mandate those because prisoners are a captive audience in a very literal sense. Uh, and maybe the state owes them the safest environment they, they have. We know that there have been outbreaks in prison and people have died from them. Uh, and that won't affect your general audience, but there are correction officers that are also physicians. Uh, so I don't know where, what states will do. There's, I know they're still discussing this. I know they're considering, do we do this for licensing? Uh, if there's an industry that has seen relatively high rates of um, of uh, outbreaks, that may be a place for the state to mandate. I also know that there are some states that mandate influenza vaccines, not a lot, but some, and they may be tempted to add COVID-19 vaccines to that roster. Mandated in correction facilities or mandated? No, no mandate health, that healthcare workers get influenza. Oh, health, the state, so the state, the entire state does it. It's not just hospital yeah. by hospital. Okay. You had mentioned the children before, right? We don't want to forget about the children. So, right, yes. this isn't currently approved in children, but we will possibly get to that place, right? So for the pediatricians listening, for the family practitioners listening, can you talk a little about the legalities around vaccines, a little more about, about this? Because children are not the property of their parents. They're yes. not the property of the state, but they don't have the capacity to decide from themselves. Yes. So where does that leave them? So there's three parts I, that they hope physicians consider. First, I doubt that COVID-19 vaccines for children will get to a level where it makes sense to uh, force them over parental uh, will. We very rarely do that. It's extremely rare. And 
given the relatively low risk of COVID-19 for children, I don't see that happening there. What you should keep in mind is some school immunization mandates have a role for physicians. For example, in some states, you have to sign that you had a discussion with the parents about the risk of benefits of vaccines. Uh, in some states, you advise the parents about the mandates. Uh, they'll ask you for good or bad. Uh, and in some states, you're the one giving the medical exemption. Well, in all states, with or without the health department's involvement. So you may have a role in helping school immunization mandate. And if COVID-19 vaccine is added, that will affect that too. The last thing I want physicians to keep in mind is uh, for minors, for uh, older children, for older teens, maybe 14 and up, check what your state laws are. And if you're connected to your state AAP and it's not already on the, on the books, consider uh, advocating for a minor consent law for vaccines generally. Uh, because at some point... The, the minors do reach a capacity to make at least some decisions for themselves. In some states, there's always already the ability of minors to consent from 14 or 15 for treatment, including vaccines. In other states, from 12 and up, there's the ability to consent to some vaccines, such as hepatitis B and HPV. Uh, with something with a stronger scientific consensus behind it as vaccines, it makes sense to allow older minors to consent, you may want to put in place informed consent procedures, but it makes sense to allow minors to consent, and that may be a place where policy change makes sense. I have kind of an interesting question. Let's see. Let's see if uh, what, what your opinion is on these vaccine passports. So the so the ability to fly. So we've already talked about as an employee or an employer, yeah. but what about as a patron? Right, if you're going to be going on an airplane to be able to show either proof of antibody or proof of vaccination. Where do you see this? This is this is not something that I think yeah. our patients, this is not going to lead to vaccine hesitancy, but it just a point of interest. Where, where do you yeah. where do you see this so, going? First of all, private businesses have rights. Uh, corporations are legal persons under our law and they get to set their own rules within limits. Private uh, airlines can set conditions for flying and they do. Anyone who's tried to fly pregnant probably remember that there might be issues with flying pregnant, at least at some point. They can require vaccination. And there's actually quite a bit of indication that international flight companies will at some point require vaccination. And I want to alert people that uh, there, it's, it's likely, in my view, that at least some countries will require that entering Americans will show COVID-19 vaccine evidence because our control of COVID-19 is not as good as some of our uh, peers to say the least, yes. Yes. So we may see entry requirements for COVID-19 vaccine from other countries, and we may see it from international airlines. We may also see it from domestic airlines. In United States, there's two limits from the same acts I just mentioned. The, the Americans with Disability Act could require private business to provide some accommodation for people with real disabilities. And the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, applies to places of public accommodation and, and requires an accommodation there. So there are limits, some limits on that, but they're weaker than a foreign employer. But if it's the American with Disabilities Act, can't you put the argument that for a vaccine mandate, because you're trying to protect someone with a disability who cannot or might have a, a more severe course of illness? 
Yes, you could try to make an argument under that. I've actually heard some friends trying to argue that they should make that argument for vaccine mandates without non-medical exemptions. It's going to be tricky because you have people with disabilities on both sides. And the other part of the American Disabilities Act is what's the accommodation when you're on an airline? What can you, is there a reasonable accommodation you can use or is there nothing that's that's without a significant burden? If it's a significant burden, you don't have to accommodate. So there's going to be questions there. But in theory, so in theory, private business can do that. The biggest question will be the practicalities. When it's mask mandates, airlines can see the mask. Yeah. When it's vaccine mandate, what exactly will they ask for? Yeah. And how will it work? So yeah. it, something like it's this forged. Yes. And is it worth the effort to go through the having to verify this? Uh, so it's going to be more practical than legal. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. One one last question, and and this wasn't on the on the list, but I I saw a recent Twitter post of yours where someone had messaged you on Facebook, right? So it was a threat, basically yeah. for the That's for the not work. Unusual. I just don't usually put them up. Yeah, but you know, for those of us who are who want to also put ourselves out there online, knowing that these types of people are out there. Uh, you know, I'll just summarize it. It wasn't a direct threat, but they just were informing you that people were talking about you online and that you should be careful, right? So given that you're, this isn't your area of legal expertise, but you're a legal expert, right? So you know more <laughs> than us physicians about it. Can you talk a little about the legal recourse if you get some type of a uh, um, discussion yes. like that. So I have a dual identity in vaccine uh, wars. One is uh, as, a, as a, the a legal person that does vaccine, and the other is as someone who's active online. He's a Daniel Levy. Um, Hello, gentlemen. Um, here I'm going to talk as a, someone who does uh, things online, and I actually interact with quite a few people who faced harassment, and we've just we're just coming out. So you may have heard about. Uh, nurse Tiffany Dover from Tennessee, who got a vaccine, fainted, and there was there's an interim rumor that she's dead, and she has been targeted incredibly badly by the anti-vaccine movement. Anyway, her hospital was targeted with hundreds of comments from all around the world. They shared it in Europe and in Brazil and elsewhere. Her personal timeline was targeted. They stalked her family, and some of the com- comments are outright threatening. We have resources for people who find themselves under massive anti-vaccine attack. I want to plug Dr. Todd Wallin from Shots Heard. Yes. We also have a handout with some suggestion, and we have some other tips for people who find themselves facing massive anti-vaccine attack. And I encourage people to reach out in that situation, and I would be happy to share some of the resources. And again, I want to plug Shots Heard who are doing this this really important work. Personally, if you personally are targeted, so first of all, as you go into speaking about vaccine, lock down your social media profiles. Don't have your personal address on there. Don't have your children. I'm saying this even though I do this, I don't do this. But don't have your children's picture easily available and so forth. And make sure all your YouTube of your family are unlisted. People have tracked down my children's YouTube in the past. Oh, God. Um, so do those things. Talk to your employer. I am active about vaccines online. 
I you can expect potentially people complaining about me. Almost all employers are very reasonable about it, but uh, if there's an issue, talk to me. The um, unless someone engages in a direct threat, there's not a lot of legal recourse. Uh, the re, the solutions are almost always practical and uh, related to social media. Uh, if someone engages in a direct threat go to the police, don't hesitate, go to the FBI. Um, if I, so I have known people who have brought defamation suit. I will say that I, I don't encourage this. It's hard, long, not easy, uh, very likely to lose under our defamation laws. And uh, it might bring you more negative attention. It, it, not only negative attention, but it can also bring a, uh, increase the visibility of the anti-vaccine person and give them a boost. Yeah. So I would not encourage this. Okay. Uh, but if you face, for example, a litigation threat, please let me know or contact Pope Hat, um, who has been uh, my, my go-to person for lawyers, for people facing litigation threat from the anti-vaccine movement. Wait, who is that? Pope Hat, P-O-P-E Hat. Uh, Ken White, he's a lawyer in Los Angeles. I'm saying okay. it because his name is public. He's not hiding his identity. Uh, and he's a good person to go to if uh, you're facing legal harassment. I can also uh, try and help. We also uh, we can also offer some moral support. Uh, I'm happy to talk on the phone with people who are under harassment. The main advice I'd give to someone facing harassment is lock down your profiles don't do it alone. Ask for help if you need it and talk to your employer. I think those are the first three pieces. And remember that you haven't done anything wrong. You don't really have any dark secret to hide. And what these people are saying about you probably has a lot less to do with you than with them. All about them. All about them. They're hearing things you're likely not even saying. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I'd like to end on a positive. Uh, <laughs> COVID vaccines are out. Yes, yes, we're we're, we're heading in the right it. direction. There is yes. there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Dorit Rice, thank you so much. I'm sorry, Professor Dorit Rice, thank you so much. Thank you. For, it's just fun talking uh, to you. This was this was great, extremely informative, and I'm sure we will cross paths again. Sounds good. Such a great show with Dr. Dorit Rice. And before we end, don't forget to reach out to Medevolve. For those of us who know how hard it is to build and maintain a sustainable business, we understand that bringing the right help to achieve our goals is really important. Get in touch with them for data-driven analytics, workflow automation, and medical billing technology and services by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash Medevolve and get going on the right path. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.